Picture, if you will, five adult siblings seated on the deck of their parents' home. Their dad has died several years ago, and he's left behind a very detailed will. But a matter has arisen concerning his estate that was not specifically addressed in the will, and the siblings are really in heated debate about what should be done. And the oldest brother stands to his feet and he raises his voice and he proclaims what he believes absolutely must happen. Just then, the aged mother opens the screen door, walks out onto the deck, and says something like this, That is not what your father would want. And the siblings voice their strong agreement. Well, in one sense, it makes no difference what dad may or may not have wanted. He's gone, and the family is free to proceed as they might think best, yet they want to honor his memory. And what dad would have wanted is important then to them, the problem being is he's not around to ask. In some sense, the church of Jesus Christ routinely faces this same dilemma. We have God's Word. We have a detailed record of His will. Yet issues arise creating debates among us as to what God wants us to do or to believe. And for us, it is absolutely essential that we get it right. Jesus rules from heaven's throne over His church, which He bought with His blood. And so we have no freedom to proceed however we wish, like these siblings really have. We must seek to believe and to do exactly what Jesus wants us to do. The problem is, for the time being, he's not here. To ask him sometimes exactly what he would like us to do. And sometimes that leads us to be deeply divided. There's people who very much would understand my illustration of siblings sitting on a deck and arguing about what their deceased father would want. But they're the same people who point a finger at the church and say, why can't you people figure it out and get along? The tendency then is to interpret such difficulties and debates among Christians as tragic And it's evidence that the Christian faith is really not true. But in reality, such debates, when properly handled, are crucial means by which the Spirit of God leads His church to discern Jesus' will and understand the implications of our salvation. These debates are not necessarily tragic. God has not left a word of everything that He desires of us. And so we labor to understand how the gospel of Christ applies in the world in which we live. Through the ages, indeed, even false teachers have aided the church. They have forced Jesus' people to clarify the meaning of His Word. We do not commend these teachers, to be sure, yet they have consistently motivated God's people to discern God's will more accurately. And that brings us to this 15th chapter of the book of Acts. We have here a major battle that is raging among the believers in the ancient church. Thinking on this battle, we just look back a little ways and we recognize here the stunning turn of events of Gentiles who are coming to embrace Israel's Messiah. 
Jesus of Nazareth. They're coming in increasing numbers to respond to Israel's Messiah. In chapter 10, we have then the conversion of Cornelius, this Roman centurion, and a Gentile. And that leads to some real contention. Peter, were you doing the right thing to share the gospel with this Gentile and to not see this man first become a Jew? Chapter 11 and verse 18, we remember Peter's response there. He said, after he explains to them what God has done, that Cornelius was baptized by the Holy Spirit, they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. That follows upon the account of the church in Syrian Antioch, verse 19 of chapter 11. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, working their way to the north and to the west, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Why do Jews? Jews are God's people. Jews are part of the covenant people of God through whom he has brought salvation. But, verse 20, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, to Gentiles, also preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them. Jesus is working among the Gentiles. And a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church at Jerusalem. And they send Barnabas north to Antioch to check things out. He is thrilled. He is joyful. He exhorts the people and encourages them to continue in the faith when he realizes that God is doing a work in Antioch among the Gentiles. We come then to chapters 13 and 14. And Paul and Barnabas are sent out by the church at Antioch. They proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, and again there is response. Now remember, they're going from synagogue to synagogue to talk to the Jews. But there are Gentiles who are also hearing the message and responding. In fact, Paul and Barnabas say, we are going to turn to the Gentiles with our evangelistic efforts. And as they come back to the church at Antioch, what do they say in their report? Chapter 14 and verse 27. 1427, when they arrived and gathered the church together, back here in Antioch, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. They remained no little time with the disciples there in Antioch. So they're stationed back here after this first journey and they are filled with joy. The church is expanding and growing. Gentiles are hearing the gospel. What we don't see yet at this point is the tremendous upheaval in the church. There's heated debate that revolves around this issue. Must a Gentile become a Jew in order to truly be saved? We've got to, as Western Americans, try as hard as we can to think of 2,000 years of precedent, and certainly of 1,500 years of precedent with the Mosaic Law. God has been working through the walls of separation through Israel. His glory is, in a sense, behind those walls. And you must become a Jew. And you must follow the rituals because it is true of God that He is holy and unapproachable because of our sin. And so you must come to God on His terms. He's been doing this for century after century. And people are saying, no, those who respond as Gentiles must become Jews. 
They must enter through this narrow portal to become believers. God has only one people. That is the Jewish nation. Gentiles, in order to be complete, must then embrace not only Israel's Messiah, but also follow the Mosaic Law. Great debate. There are strong opinions in two distinct camps that are forming. There are those that are taking the Gospel to Gentiles directly, saying nothing about the Mosaic Law, and there are those that are saying everyone who hears the Gospel of Israel's Messiah must embrace also the Law of Moses. Well, this controversy now becomes very clear to us in chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. So, coming down in elevation, heading north in direction from Jerusalem to Antioch, these self-appointed teachers are going to set things straight at this hotbed of Gentile evangelism in Antioch. They head up there and find Barnabas and Paul teaching and preaching directly to Gentiles. They were utterly convinced, these teachers, that they had the mind of God. They knew what Jesus would want. The Gentiles were to respond to Christ, but they were also to live out their life following the law of Moses. At issue is nothing less than the gospel itself. Now that point is going to be developed far more in the epistles and far more in the works of the Apostle Paul. But really at issue is what the gospel of Christ is. How is a person saved? And there's no small dissension and debate. Against the position of the Judaizers, Paul and Barnabas are going to argue that God saves Gentiles through faith in Jesus crucified and risen apart from any conformity to the law of Moses. We can look at a a great statement on that in Galatians chapter 2 from the pen of the Apostle Paul. We won't take time to do that today, but it's laid out there for us. Now, so contentious is this debate. In the middle of verse 2, we learn that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So you're seeing this. There's representatives from this church in Antioch being appointed by the assembly, with the authority of the assembly, to go down south, up in elevation to Jerusalem, and to talk to the apostles and elders there to help work through this matter. It's a 250-mile journey by foot. And as is characteristic of Paul and Barnabas, they put their journey to good use, and they encourage believers along the way, verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria. Phoenicia on the uh, coast of Palestine, Samaria on the southern border of Phoenicia. They're describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and it brings great joy to all the brothers. These more open-minded Jews have been evangelized by Hellenists, and they are seeing what God is doing and rejoicing that He is calling out Gentiles to Himself. Verse 4, And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed, this contingent from Antioch, Paul and Barnabas, they were welcomed by the church in Jerusalem, and notice it here, the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Now, how do you think they're received? 
If we put the chronology together, as I think is appropriate, and there is debate upon it, but I think that if we think of this chronologically with accuracy, Paul and Barnabas have been to Jerusalem fairly recently with a sizable gift to help the famine-stricken believers in Jerusalem. And here they are again, these men of grace, these men of encouragement. Barnabas, one of our own, who rose up here in our Jerusalem church. Here they have come, these great missionaries, and they're recounting how Gentiles are responding to the gospel. They're received with great joy, with great esteem, and yet it appears that while they're talking, verse 5, some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Pharisees apparently had trusted that Jesus was their Messiah. But these are men who would be very seeped in strict ritual observance of the Mosaic law. Now, they're not saying that Gentiles should not hear about Christ. They're really all for that. In fact, the Old Testament prophesies that Gentiles will respond to the salvation message that God gives. And in the end times, certainly Gentiles will come around Israel and will seek the son of David together. They understand this. The problem is these Gentile converts to Messiah are not following the law. And that has to change. So, Paul and Barnabas, we're happy with your missionary stories. We rejoice with you, in fact, but this is not complete. These new believers, you must understand, have to follow the law of Moses. They must become Jews. They need to pursue circumcision. They need to raise their families under the strict guidelines of the Mosaic law. And at verse 6, we find this debate continues and a decision is ultimately made. Let's trace out this great meeting which has an awful lot to do with us and why we're sitting here today. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Church apparently is free to come and join in, as verse 12 will indicate, but we have leadership in the church, apostles and elders. They're gathering to consider, and after there, there had been much debate, notice it again, it's not tragic in and of itself, the debate allows them to discern God's will, but Peter stands up. We know of Peter's position in this Jerusalem church. He stands up and he says to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. What's he talking about? That's Acts 10 and 11. That's Cornelius. You remember the debate that swirled around that situation. And God, he says, verse 8, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. You remember this. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. The key in this Gentile evangelism, you will remember, says Peter, is that the Gentiles were baptized by the Spirit of God. Remember that memorable day in Caesarea, 
It was clear evidence of the saving grace of God. How did God cleanse the hearts of these Gentiles? I ask you the question, says Peter, how did he cleanse their hearts? Verse 9 is the answer. It is by faith. They were not cleansed by keeping the law of Moses. They were cleansed when they trusted Jesus as their Savior by faith. So Peter says, listen to me. Why do you want to place the restrictive yoke of the Mosaic law on these new believers when, let's admit it, we've never been able to handle this yoke? All the dietary restrictions, all of the clean and unclean guidelines, all of the sacrifices and the rituals, it was all meant to say something about God. We've not been able to keep it. Why would we take these people in their Gentile context and impose upon them a yoke that we've never been able to bear ourselves? This is not what Jesus would want. So don't test God. Look what he's doing The conclusion is God had a good reason for establishing the Mosaic law. But in the end, under the old covenant as now under the new, salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is fitting that in the book of Acts, these words are the last of Peter's. These words are left ringing in our ears, verse 11, as he goes off the scene, off the stage in this book. He says, we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, not by works of the law. A point that the Apostle Paul will so well articulate in his epistles. But I pause here to say, are you familiar with those epistles Do you know what Paul has said in Galatians? Do you know what he has said to the Romans? It is possible that you come here today and you're not as aware of those books as you should be, but you evidence it by the fact that you are pursuing religious effort in order to please God. You think that you can earn a right standing before God by being a little better than your neighbor by doing certain things that God would want you to do. This is something of a test. We put a sheet of paper in front of you and give you a pen with which to write and ask you the question right on this piece of paper, everything that you must do in order to earn eternal life. Now, strictly speaking, you should turn that paper back in blank. We do, of course, repent of our sins. We do, of course, embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in the end, when it comes to what do I do to earn eternal life, the answer is nothing. It is by grace alone. The salvation of God is a pure gift to sinners who don't deserve that gift. By grace you have been saved, will write the Apostle Paul, By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not of works so that no one will boast. We will boast through all eternity in the unmerited grace of God. This is the way of salvation. It's not by what we do. 
And when we write things on the paper, I must do this, and I will do this, and I must do this in order to please God, what we are saying is we don't understand our sin, we don't understand the judgment of God, and we don't understand His grace. It is by grace alone. And this is where Peter's words echo for the last time in the book of Acts. The grace of the Lord Jesus is all that is necessary for salvation. Next, Barnabas and Paul speak. Paul will speak, as I mentioned, much more in the later books of the New Testament on this very issue. But in verse 12, all the assembly fell silent as I think what the sense is that the Spirit of God is witnessing the truth to what Peter is saying. Salvation is by grace alone. The assembly falls silent and they listen to Barnabas and Paul as they relate what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now why are they relating the signs and wonders that God has done? These are evidences where the ascended Christ is working. He's saving people. And the evidences are these miracles that He worked while He was on earth and that we are working through His Spirit as we're proclaiming the Gospel to Gentiles. As Peter has established theologically, Paul and Barnabas' support with their missionary stories, it is directly by grace that the Gentiles are being saved, not through submission to the law of Moses. Now, a fourth individual stands to speak Verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied. And he's going to now speak. Who's James? Not John's brother. That James is dead, has been martyred. But this is Jesus' half-brother, the leader of the church at Jerusalem, according to chapter 12 and verse 17. A man highly revered in Jerusalem for his singular devotion to God. In the history accounts that we have of James to this day, this man was highly revered. He was a man of prayer. He was a man of fasting. He was a man who scrupulously followed the law of Moses. There was no Pharisee out there who could point to James and say, you're breaking the law here. This man lived a life of unmitigated devotion to God, and he was highly esteemed for this. He's a Jew to beat all Jews in Jerusalem. But what does he say? He's going to blow some people away. He says, brothers, listen to me. Verse 14, Simeon, Hebrew name for Peter, interesting choice of name, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. That is earth-shaking. A people for his name. That's a designation for the people of Abraham. That's his designation for Jews, not Gentiles. But he says, listen people, God is doing this. He is taking a people for His name. Or as Peter would write later, you Gentiles who have responded to Christ are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of His own possession. Once you were not a people But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And continues James, it is also supported by Scripture. And with the words of the prophets, agree, just as it is written, 
Verse 16, quoting Amos 9, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. This is an interpretive quotation of Amos the prophet. Long before these days, he prophesied that Israel was in deep trouble. There would be the judgment of God upon Israel, and the tent of David, the dynasty of great King David, was going to be pulled down. The stakes were going to be yanked up, and the tent was going to fall flat. There would be no king on David's throne. There was no king on David's throne, and Israel was in deep trouble because of God's judgment. But there would be a day of renewal. This is where the prophet Amos ends his book, a day of renewal where Israel and its remnant would be brought back to God. And the exalted Jesus is now the promised son of David who will fulfill God's promise to restore David's dynasty. Verse 16, James understands this and he speaks here of this remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So through this son of David, the end time harvest of Gentiles has begun. God is drawing the Gentiles in through faith in David's son, Jesus, not through incorporation into Abraham's physical offspring, Israel. Therefore, he says, so based on what we have heard that God is doing through His Spirit, based upon what the Scriptures themselves teach, that through this Son of David will come a restoration of David's dynasty, bringing in the Gentiles, he says, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, we'll unpack what he said here at the end here for a bit, but first of all, let me say, if baptism was to replace circumcision, this would have really been a good time to make that clear. They don't make it clear because it doesn't replace circumcision. The truth is, baptism does not replace circumcision. Jesus fulfills the law. As Paul will write in Romans 10 and verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now that's not all fleshed out here, perhaps even fully understood yet here, and people are still debating the point to this day. But the point to us is that united to Christ and empowered by the Spirit to honor the law of love, there's no need for Gentiles to be yoked to the law of Moses. The law of Moses comes with the command, do not murder, but it comes with all of the other rituals and stipulations. It's not necessary for us to go through all those rituals and stipulations to remember that we're not to kill someone. If we have been united with Jesus Christ, the law of love will lead us to love our neighbor as ourself, and we will fulfill the law, do not murder. We'll go far beyond it, and we will love others as we love ourselves. Conformity to the Mosaic law 
including circumcision, is, says James, says Peter, a burden that should not be placed on the Gentiles. And as Paul's epistles will bring out, to do so actually denigrates the gospel. To add human works to the gospel is to sink its ship. It's to make it something other than it is. However, James continues, there are Jews all over the world who are hearing the Hebrew Scriptures read in synagogue every Sabbath, and Gentiles, we need to think about them. We are not going to place upon you the burden of the law. You don't need to become a Jew. However, you do need to think about Jews. There are things polluted by idols. There's sexual immorality. There are things strangled. There's blood. We wonder about sexual immorality there. It seems that that's a moral law of God and these other are more ceremonial matters. There's two ways of looking at it. The first is that sexual immorality may refer to the marriage to close relatives that some Gentiles would have practiced that were forbidden in Leviticus 18, 17 and 18 in that section. The other way to look at this, and it's certainly true of things polluted by idols, things strangled in blood, is that the context here is Gentiles obtaining meat at pagan temple feasts where the meats were not only associated with idolatry, but were not prepared according to the stipulations of the Mosaic law. And at these temples, there were all kinds of sexual acts going on. So however we turn it, we don't really even know all of the nuances of why these stipulations are given. What we need to grasp is Gentiles, you have freedom in Christ from the Mosaic law. All you need to do is go with Christ in your relationship with Him, and you will fulfill the law in Him. But there are Jews out there who are hearing the Mosaic law written every Sabbath. We need to think about them. You need to go to a different place to get your meat. You need to eat a different kind of meat so that they're not offended, saying, here are Christians who disobey the Bible. As one has said in the context of the Apostle Paul, when it came to principle and what mattered, he was like an iron rod. When it came to things that weren't necessary, he was like a reed that would sway in the wind, yielding and bending. Here we bend. On the gospel's purity apart from the law, a steel rod. We don't bend. Nothing can be added to the gospel of Christ. Now, I ask here, who on earth does James think he is? articulating this final verdict of the council. Well, let me say here, if Peter is the first pope, he's making a very poor showing of it here, isn't he? This is a church he led, and he's not making the final decision. I don't think James is necessarily making the final decision either, but he is definitely leading in the church at Jerusalem. Slowly, over time, we watch in the text of Acts the leadership of the apostles, only the apostles, transfer slowly to the apostles and the elders. Then at 16 and verse 4, we do not read of apostles and elders any longer. From that place forward, the leaders of the church are elders. It doesn't take rocket science to see what's going on here. 
The apostles are the first leaders of the Jerusalem church. They are the followers of Christ. They have authority to speak for Him. But slowly, over time, they're backing away from the Jerusalem church and its leadership in order to stabilize it in the hands of those who are going to carry on the work, these elders and James. So, is James an apostle? It's interesting that in the text of Acts, he's never referred to that way. In Galatians 1 and verse 19, he is called an apostle, but the word could be used generically there. James does not meet the qualifications given in Acts chapter 1. Since the apostles are fading away from the leadership of the Jerusalem church, since the New Testament does not know of a third office besides elders and deacons, James' position in the Jerusalem church must be either a transitional one, there's no indication of that, or what I would suggest is that he is one of the elders, a leader among equals. Why is it always James and the elders? It's the apostles and it's James and the elders. That distinction is always made. Well, we know that the apostle Peter had no problem referring to himself as an elder, even though he was an apostle. And putting all of this together, I think that it's clear that James is serving as an elder in the Jerusalem church, as one of the pastoral leaders. And as such, he does not hold a position of authority over the other elders, yet he is a leader among equals. That is seen in 12.17 and 21.18 and here in Acts chapter 15. So who does he think he is? He is a leader among the equals of elders who are the people who are ultimately holding responsibility for the direction of the Jerusalem church. Peter, by this point, having transitioned away from that head leadership position, probably in order to carry on his evangelistic efforts. So the declaration of the council is made. Verse 22, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. Notice the elements there. The apostles the elders, the whole church, to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they sent Judas called Barsabbas, we know nothing else of him, Silas, a man who will join Paul in the second missionary journey, leading men among the brothers. And they go with this letter, brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch of Syria, Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. So we note the church's participation in this letter. The apostles, the elders, lead in the discussion, but the church participates in the process and affirms the decision, sending this message north up into these regions where Gentiles are responding. Verse 24, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, note that, they were not authorized by the apostles. Verse 25, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, that is to confirm it, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, and he lays them out. 
Abstain from things sacrificed to idols, from food that has not been properly drained of blood, from things, meats that have been strangled to death, from sexual immorality either connected to the pagan temple or marriage laws of the Mosaic Code. And if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Now let's go back for a moment to verse 24. There's a lesson here I think we need to gain. They went out without instructions from us. They were not authorized by the apostles and elders. They were not given authority by the church in Jerusalem. But these people believed they were right. And they took the message north to Antioch in order to carry on their agenda in preaching this idea that Gentile converts must go through the law of Moses. Now we think as Baptists of the priesthood of the believer, and it's a precious truth for which many of our Baptist ancestors have given their life. People died to believe in the priesthood of the believer. But it is vital to understand that the priesthood of the believer is not equivalent with the infallibility of the individual. When we come to believe we know what Jesus would want us to believe or do, it's wise that we ask other believers what they think. Not simply tell them what God is directing me to do or what God has indicated I should believe, but to ask them, what do you think? Long before these Judaizers had packed their bags and started visiting churches of Syria, Cilicia, and Galatia, according to Paul's epistle, they should have sat down with James and the elders of the Jerusalem church and tested their convictions. They should have gained approval. They should have been sent out by the church to carry this message. They didn't. In a twisted view of the priesthood of the believer, they believed they had the right They had the truth. They knew what Jesus would want, and they went out on their own to proclaim this truth. So from Jerusalem, where the trouble starts, a gracious letter is sent to guide the Gentiles to defer to some of the scruples of the Jews while standing true to the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. And that letter is delivered, verse 30. So when they were sent off, sent off again with the authority of the church. They went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. I can imagine on a physical level, the Gentile men, hearing that they don't need to be circumcised, are going to be rejoicing. But I don't think that's the whole point. I think the point is that they are part of the work of God. Gentiles mixed in among the Jewish believers here in Antioch are hearing that we are part of the people of God. What grace this is. What wonder this is. The God of Abraham has included us in His saving purposes. Now think of this, and we need to think of this. All the Gentiles before Jesus, they had to come in this very difficult way to God by becoming a Jew. Now here are these Gentiles saying what glory we enjoy at this point in history. We can come directly to the Messiah of Israel. We can be saved from our sins and we do not need to yield to these laws of Moses. Once they were not a people, but now they were the people of God in full standing just as they were. 
Verse 32, And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. Verse 34 is added in some texts. I think it's a scribal addition to try to get Silas back to Antioch because verse 40 has him there. And verse 33 has him going to Jerusalem. Well, he just went to Jerusalem and turned around and came back to Antioch is really the right answer. Verse 34 should not be included there. It's a scribal addition to try to help us out, and it actually hurts us. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch. They're the ones who stay, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. As has so often been the case in the history of the church, it is conflict over doctrine and church practice that so often leads to a clarification of God's will to the joy of God's people. And from this account, we witness certainly characteristics of healthy church conflict. There's recognized authority in the local church. There's the authority of the local church. There's a congregational participation in the process. There's leadership that takes a position and seeks to lead the church in a properly doctrinal way. There's the teaching of the Spirit of God. Not free-floating individuals all saying, I have the Spirit of God and conflicting with one another, but a real sense that in community, as we work together, as we talk together through this conflict, there will be a leaning that the Spirit of God gives. There's a desire to discern God's will. There's a quest for unity around the truth of God's Word. Not around unity at all costs and not for the sake of political expediency. Do we understand what James has done? He is the darling of the Jews. He is a Jew to beat all Jews here in Jerusalem. If they're going to look to anyone to speak for their cause, that all Gentiles must become Jews, it's James that's going to carry the day. James stands and makes a hard decision. He speaks the truth. And from this place on, we're really seeing Jerusalem in our rearview mirror. Its significance begins to wane as it becomes clear that the Jews that are responding to the faith are getting to be fewer and fewer and fewer. 3,000 on day one of the church, not seeing those kind of results anymore. From now on, it's the Gentile churches that are responding as there's an explosion of witness evangelism that flows from this council. James did the right thing. He did not do the conservative thing. Conservatives conserve the past at all costs. Now, it's, there's times when it's very right to conserve things that come from the past. New ideas are often bad ideas. Not always. If it's bad to conserve the past, if God has entered into the equation, destroyed the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, fulfilled the law in Christ, and granted saving grace to the Gentiles. For James to be a conservative here would be to test God, to go against Him. He does the right thing. He stands for the truth. Now, this was a -a one-of-a-kind historical meeting, and we don't seek to emulate it, and we don't pretend that we are as a church. I think in the end as well, indeed, we work with a conflict in our understanding of Scripture this evening, don't we? To some degree, as we grapple with the text of Scripture and are working through issues together as a church. But we're not, as a church, to come and, and to consider our meeting tonight as having the same implications as this meeting. 
Nor are we to slavishly follow a pattern here. This whole text is not about ultimately how to serve church, solve church conflict. It is ultimately about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It provides a look into the kind of community Christ has created by the gospel. And it reminds us that in every debate, we must labor to preserve the purity of the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection and its implications. Had this council gone the other way, there's no way we're here today. The Christian movement would be this small, little, scratch-and-claw thing that was probably still fairly close to the Palestinian area. Maybe spreading a bit west, but if every Gentile had to become a Jew to be saved, this would have locked down God's saving purposes. In Jesus Christ, His purposes went global. Immediately. Had this council gone another way, we wouldn't be here. But led by the Spirit, wrestling together to discern what Jesus would want, the early believers upheld the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. And as Gentiles, here in the 21st century, it's easy for us to look back on them and go, come on, was it really that hard? But looking at them in their context, yes, it was. This was excruciatingly difficult to make this move they don't do it for political reasons. In fact, every political indicator with Paul, with Peter, with James is that the easiest thing would have been to leave the Jews have their way, the Judaizers have their way. The council legitimized all of the Gentile evangelism to this point and laid the foundation for all the Gentile evangelism that would take place from that point, including this assembly here today. We are the result of them getting this right. We are the result, by the grace of God, of the witness of Christ to Gentiles apart from any attachment to the Mosaic Law. Eventually that message reached us half a planet away. And we should rejoice. We cannot see this passage and not rejoice as Gentile believers you have been united by faith to Jesus Christ who has fulfilled every demand of the Mosaic Law. He has become your righteousness. He delivers you from condemnation. He's become your soul's eternal delight. He has done this through the pure grace of salvation in Christ. Faith in His death to pay the penalty of our sins. Faith in His resurrection to defeat death and give us eternal life. It's in this that we have salvation, and it is by grace alone. Could we see, just playing with our imagination for a moment, James from historical accounts, his knees calloused like a camel's because of his prayers. There he is before the church, kneeling, praying. And we as Gentiles come up next to him and we get down on our knees and we pray with him. And some Judaizer stands up, inspired by Satan himself, and says, why would you pray with a Gentile? And here this great man who is all Jew says, 
because the ground is level at the cross. It's level. We have been invited in. We don't deserve this. We're not Jews, but in the mercy of God, by grace alone, we have come to salvation in Israel's Messiah. May we never forget what privilege is ours. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we thank you that the perfect and sinless sacrifice Jesus Christ was offered in our behalf. We praise you for what he has accomplished. God, we can give no account in our mind for why we were not born in 1000 B.C. Completely out of range of Jerusalem, never having heard of it. But for some reason, in your mercy, you have brought to us as Gentiles a simple message of the incarnate Son of God dying in our place to pay the penalty of our sin, rising from the dead. And through that message, by a gift of grace from your throne, we just believed. We just trusted it. We saw it for what it was. And we simply reached out in faith, and we're saved. Why? We have utterly no answer. But we know that through all eternity, we will proclaim the glories of your salvation in Christ by grace alone. And we praise you in his name, praying fervently for any among us who are separated from Christ, not because they're Gentiles, but because they're lost in their sin. They don't deserve your judgment and the pending wrath. They don't deserve, discern how they failed to obey your will. I plead that they'd see in Jesus the answer to the emptiness of heart, to the destruction that awaits them, to the forgiveness of sins. May they come, and may we all rejoice. In Christ's name, amen.